You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Ridgecrest Baptist Church in Springfield, Missouri. To connect with us or learn more, visit us online at ridgecrestbaptist.org. It's such a good, good thing to be in God's Word, and in particular, to take some time and look at some of the basics, some of the fundamental, foundational elements of our faith. And of course, the book of Genesis gives us a great opportunity to do that. In fact, as we think about things that that need to transpire in the body of Christ, and as far as that goes, the ministry of churches, we want to share with the world this beautiful life we have in Christ And the perfect picture of that beautiful life is obviously to be found here in the Garden of Eden. And we can experience that together this morning and look at it. And my hope and prayer is that as you go from this place today, regardless of your age, regardless of your career, wherever you're at in life, my hope is that you will help make this world a more beautiful place. Because I'm going to tell you, God has a beautiful plan for your life. And I know that some days it doesn't feel that beautiful. Some days it just feels like it's monotony. Other days, well, it's just bad. I get it. And that's because there's sin in the world. We'll talk about that a little bit more next week when we get into Genesis 3. But for now, we're in the garden. And there are some basic principles that we're going to see in Genesis 2, beginning in verse 8, going to the end of the chapter, some basic principles, three in fact, that I really believe can help you reclaim anything that you've lost, any beauty that's missing in your life can be filled in if we'll allow these words to fill our hearts. So will you stand with me as we stand upon the solid rock? of God's holy word. We're going to be in Genesis 2 and verse 8, okay? Let's listen to this word together. And the Lord God, that's Yahweh Elohim, beautiful name of God, planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. And there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedillium and onyx stone were there. And the name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Now notice this. The Lord God, again, Yahweh Elohim, took the man and put him in the garden to work it and keep it. Key verse there. Um, And it says, and the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. 
So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Let's pray. Lord, as we read your word, I acknowledge that the truth we need is here in your word. And so, God, help us to be dependent on what you have said to us. Lord, guide uh, this conversation that we're going to have today uh, with your word and anoint, Lord, my voice and help us all to see these truths. This is a very old story, but it has so much relevance for each person in this room today. God, whatever we're struggling with today, whatever it is that is causing us to miss the fullness of your glory, help us overcome those faults, those sins, so that we can see clearly who you are and your plan for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, you know, of late... We have all of these wonderful scientific technological advancements. Now we can kind of see out into space and see all the beautiful planets that are out there. Not too long ago, I saw this picture of this moon called Europa. It's one of the moons of Jupiter. It's this ice planet and it is spectacular. It's beautiful. It it just blows my mind. Look at the blues and the lines across it. It is amazing. But as you look out into space and you see planets like this, one thing is obvious. They may be beautiful, but they are dead. There's no life there. That ice planet doesn't have any, any life. It may be beautiful, but it's missing something. And then there's this third rock from the sun that we call Earth, this little blue-green planet that in the grand scheme of things seems insignificant and small, and yet it is teeming with life. And it is the life on planet Earth, essentially we as human beings, kind of the crown of that creation, but really all of that life that's on this planet makes this world more beautiful than all the rest. There is something special here. And what's interesting is scientists admit, really in the universe, statistically speaking, there should be nothing. But there is something. And when I say something, I mean life, something you have. And so whether we're looking out into the stars or just looking around us in this world, there are beautiful things to behold. But as you all know, sometimes we're missing some of that beauty. And it's in this passage that we begin to see why it is that we might be missing something. But notice in verse eight, God planted a garden, a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. He created a place of life so that human beings, me and you, so that we could experience life and joy in this world. Putting it simply, everything about the life God gives is beautiful. Everything about the life God wants to share with you is beautiful. But what we need to realize is, is when there's something lacking, when the beauty is lacking, then we have to ask, why is that? Where, where's that coming from? Well, usually it's coming from our hearts. It's coming from a sense of rebellion. It's coming from the brokenness in our world. So I want to show you in our text today as quickly as I can, all right, three beautiful things. The first thing is a little bit 
countercultural, counterintuitive maybe, um, I'm going to talk about the beauty of work. And I'm surprised I'm not getting booze right there. But anyway, the beauty of work. Then we're going to talk about the beauty of the word. The beauty of the word. God speaks in this passage and gives commands. We're going to talk about why that's beautiful. And then thirdly, we're going to talk about how we can be beautifully wed. We're going to talk about the relational element of life and how beauty can flow through those key, most important relationships in our lives. And so today, I hope that as we look at these things, we will, we will be able to see not only an abstract picture of beauty, more so that we will see beauty that we can apply in our lives, that you can take with you tomorrow to school to work or wherever you go God has something special to show you and share with you in the word today so let's talk about beautiful work and how there can be joy in doing you see God gives us these wonderful gifts Eden itself was a beautiful gift but it came with some responsibilities responsibilities that Adam was going to have to take care of now when you look at verses 8 and 9 if you take a look there in the text you'll notice that the garden is sort of highlighted by its rivers and its trees and the picture that's painted here is is of a place like a national park or 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 someplace you can imagine going uh, to to a retreat or a vacation it really was a beautiful place it was created by God and the landscapes were amazing But one of the things that that as I studied the passage, I began to realize they weren't just like trapped in the garden. If you'll notice in the text, it speaks of these other lands around where there are gold and and precious gems. Why does it mention that except for this, that that Adam was, was being encouraged here to not just soak in the garden delights, but to see that there's other things in creation like gold and, and these beautiful gems that could be fashioned into art, in, into something where the human being could express um, this, this image of God that is within them. So whether we're talking about tending the garden, which is, which is work, Adam's original work, or what it's hinting at here, that Adam was going to be able to take gold and turn it into uh, beautiful artwork or gems to use in jewelry, all these things, God wanted us from the very beginning to work. I don't know about you, but I've often thought that, uh, you know, especially when you have your first jobs when you're a teenager and those jobs are usually not all that fun, it's hard to imagine that God sanctions something like that. It's just no fun. But I hope to change your mind there and, and, and to help you see that even your work is an opportunity for witness and for making this world a more beautiful place. Verse 15 is just plain as day. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and keep it. There's no doubt that God intended us to work. Here in the second chapter of the Bible, before the third chapter, where the fall of man takes place, all the bad stuff starts rolling in in chapter three. But here in chapter two, we are still in paradise. And yet God says, you need to work it and to keep it. Monday was Labor Day. And, um, you know, everybody enjoys Labor Day. I'm not sure everybody knows what it's all about, but they'll sure take the day off and a long weekend. There isn't hardly a country song out there that doesn't celebrate a a, a weekend away from work, right? I don't know. That's what Luke tells me, that there are country songs that say this, but I'm assuming he's telling me the truth. But, 
you know, whether it's in, in that popular culture or just kind of the attitude we have about work, you know, everybody wants to kind of, you know, we do want to know where people work, but then we really want to know what they enjoy doing on the weekends, kind of what their hobbies are. That to us is, is just as important in terms of what people do. So what we've done is, is we've, we've kind of hated on work to the point where we have lost this idea that we are supposed to work for God. Let me say it even more. You are, your vocation, whatever it is, whatever job you do, you need to be thinking about how that job is making a difference for the kingdom of God. I think one of the big mistakes we make is to think that if you're a pastor or a missionary or a minister or working at a church that you're working for God and everybody else is just working. That's not at all what Genesis 2 is telling us. Genesis 2 is challenging us to see our place of work our place in the world where, where we're not just earning a paycheck, but we're looking for kingdom opportunities. I want to challenge you today to, to begin looking for delights and pleasures. I know those words don't seem to fit well here in work. Delight and pleasure in work. It's, it shouldn't always be a, a drudgery. It should be an opportunity to create something beautiful. And I believe when you look here in Eden, it was a place that, that, that God put his people, not just to be on vacation, but to take this, this, this raw material and turn it into something even more beautiful. And though we, we can't uh, recreate creation, we can form it and shape it. We can move it and mold it, and that's what God would have us do. God wants us to experience joy in his presence and dwell in that joy continually, even at work. And I'm here to tell you that if you were to say to me, I feel like I'm struggling in my, in my witness, and then you tell me you're working 40 to 60 hours a week, but you're not enjoying what you do, you're the one that nobody wants to be around at work, I could tell you that maybe one of the reasons you're not sharing the gospel too much is, is everybody would rather not talk to you because you look like you're very unhappy. So just think about that. If you go to work with a bad attitude and you're working 40 plus hours a week, so you're spending a big chunk of your week, a big chunk of your life, not making the most of the moment. That is a mistake. And I don't want you to make that mistake. The garden teaches us that if we fear the Lord, if we love him, even our work can make a difference. No matter what you do, you can bring beauty into the world. Every day you have on this earth is an opportunity to be beautiful and to make things beautiful. And I want to encourage you in that way. Now, I, I wanted to put together kind of a summary of what I've said here. So if you're struggling at work, or shall we call this a survival, uh, a survival guide for working folk, here we go. Let's take a look. Five things. We need to ask God to show us in our present work um, how he's using us and preparing us for the future. So let's think about today's work preparing us for tomorrow. I think sometimes, especially when we're younger, we're working in a job and we're always looking for the next step and we're more worried about the next step than really doing a good job in the job we're in. God has you where he wants you right now. And he may not expand your abilities to earn more money or, or have more influence until you're making the most of what you have in front of you. 
realize that your moment of work may be preparing you for the great work of your life. I'll admit, when I was selling shoes at age 18, that was not the great work of my life. But I will tell you this. On my knees most of the day, changing off shoes, off interesting smelling feet, it did teach me something about humility, something I needed to learn at age 18. It was that lesson of humility that, that, that then made the story in John 13 about Jesus washing the disciples' feet. I understood that in theory, but in practice, I began to understand it more through the selling of shoes. So it's, it's, it's those little details like that that can make a difference. Secondly, see your job as a blessing from God. When we're working and, and working hard, even if it's hard work, even if it's not very glorious work, see it as a blessing from God. God has opened up a door for you and you need to see it as such. Third, glorify God in your work each day. Every day when you go to work, if you start your morning in prayer, say, Lord, be glorified in my work today. Look for ways to create beauty in your work. If you work with the public, there's an opportunity you might have every day to be an encouragement to a hurting soul. And then this kind of feeds into the last point, serve your neighbor as you work. Wherever we are, whatever we're doing, like, like the cubicle next to you, or if you're working on an assembly line, the person next to you, where, where the people that you come in contact with, your neighbors are the people that live in the house next to you or the apartments around you, yes, but your neighbors are also those people that you're interacting with every day. Have you thought about this? Some people are talking about, man, I'm, gonna, I'm called to ministry and I'm gonna go on mission, but 40 hours a week, you're not a missionary where you work. Listen, maybe God will open up the door for mission work for you someday, but he may be waiting for you to be a missionary right where you're at. Our work is important. There are no accidents with God. If you are lacking beauty and purpose in your work, then something's wrong. There's something wrong there, not with your employer, but with your heart. Think about that. And think about ways in which your work can bring beauty into the world. Now, here's the most obvious theological point here, the beautiful word. And that is that we have peace in obedience. So evil is a prevalent force in this world. Why? Well, in Genesis 2, God speaks clearly. He says, here's this garden for you. You can even go outside of the garden and get gold and gems and make all these wonderful things. So you have a beautiful source of food, a beautiful source of artwork, if that's what your thing is. You have all these gifts, but just don't eat from the one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I mean, when you're reading this, you're like, man, come on. Like, one rule? Well, anybody that's asking that question obviously doesn't have kids. Because whatever it is, the one rule, it just tends to get broken at the house. I mean, whatever the line is, it's human nature to, you know, if this is the line, I'm going to try to put my toe across. I'm going to see how far I can get before I get in trouble. That's what we do. That's what humans do. That's our fallen condition, certainly now. But even before the fall, we sense that the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, so the God who created the heavens and the earth, the God who revealed himself as a personal God walking with them in the garden in the cool of the day, that God said, don't do this, and they disobeyed. You will find your greatest potential when you are obedient to God's word. 
but you will always find disaster when you disobey. And the penalty of sin is death. And this death leads to uh, an eternity separated away from God unless, as we know in later chapters, we see that God is already reaching out and providing a way of salvation. There is the gospel. There is hope. But friends, sin is serious business. Spiritual death is the ultimate alienation from your creator. We have here, if you'll look at verse 25, this beautiful passage of man and wife, both naked and not ashamed. That's because sin had not entered in. There was no knowledge of that sin. At this point, they have a right relationship with God because they have not uh, crossed the line. Notice again, God gave a beautiful word. Now, here's what we think. We often think when someone tells us no, that they're trying to keep something from us. Well, that actually is true here. God is trying to keep death from them. This is a good thing that he's trying to keep them from. God's word is a beautiful thing. Throughout this series, as we go through Genesis, we're going to find that God's word is telling us a different message than the culture. And we need to understand that, that God's not trying to, to turn us into puritanical uh, killjoys. That's not what he's trying to do. He's trying to show us his way. He's showing us what works. We need to be obedient to what God's word says. If we want a beautiful life, we will be obedient to God. The prohibition of God is the path to God's provision. So in other words, we need to see that God makes promises in the scripture and we can claim those promises, but sometimes he's giving us prohibitions and the prohibitions are just as helpful, if not more helpful than the promises. We love to hear the promises. You guys want to come here every Sunday and you want me to tell you all the promises of God and how God loves you and how awesome you are. But let me say this. We also need to hear the word of God and the rules and the laws and what his will is. And we need to avoid disobeying the word of God. And our peace is directly proportional to our willingness to obey the word, the beautiful word. We need to allow God's word to guide us. I've shared with some of my brothers, the leaders of this church, we, we need to think theologically. That sounds fancy, but basically it just boils down to this. Thinking theologically is saying, what does God's word speak? How does it inform me in this area, in this decision. That's one of the most important things in your life. When we come here together on Sundays, I have just 30 minutes or so to share with you my thoughts. And, and my thoughts aren't important, but what I'm hoping I can do is help you think theologically. As we're facing challenges in this world, we need to know what God's word has said. And if we know what God's word has said, then we can do things that are in keeping with his commands. So hearing the word is the first step in then obeying the word and doing what God wants us to do. In fact, I would argue that obedience is our only path back to Eden and its beauty. You cannot know God. You cannot know the beauty of God if you are continually choosing sin and rebellion. A big chunk of our text here, verses 18 through 25, uh, all three points here I think are worthy of a sermon into themselves, but we're trying to get through 11 chapters before, you know, Christmas or whatever. But I want you to see this beautifully wed, this wonderful picture of love and companionship. In Genesis 1, 27, uh, we talked about this last week. God says that we are created male and female. So he gives us a very clear understanding of his purpose and his design in the world. Now he builds on that in Genesis 2.18 and shines a little bit more light on it. He says, it is not good that the man should be alone. 
I will make him a helper fit for him. And so in this context, when we think about marriage, now I want to put a caveat here. I've thought about how to express this. I want to talk about the beauty of marriage, but I want you also to know that that marriage is something that that God works out. It's something that, that, that God brings into your life. If, if you hear me saying these things, you're like, well, I'm not married yet, so I don't know that that's applicable. Let me just say this to you. We need to think a little bit more broadly here. If you're not married, then we need to think about our relationships, those most important relationships around us, because there are some guiding principles here in terms of how God wants us to never be alone. So when I say that, I'm not talking about singleness or, or, or you know, dating, that kind of thing. But when I say alone, here's what I mean. If we are going to serve Jesus faithfully, we need people around us holding us accountable. We need people who love us enough to tell us the truth. Now, God takes a rib out of Adam and forms Eve. I joked this morning, that's the prime rib, all right? And, and so bad joke, but, but you get it, right? So the, the fact is, is that that accountability in marriage is a wonderful gift But that doesn't mean that if you're not married, you don't need that gift as well. Because alone is not good. Together is best. And marriage is a path for spiritual and functional unity. Now, it may not be the only path. If you're not married, then that spiritual and functional unity, it takes place in community, the community of Christ, where there can be healthy relationships there, okay? We're always looking for healthy relationships, healthy relationships in marriage, healthy relationships in discipleship. How do we know they're healthy? Because God defines the terms. He says what's healthy and what's not healthy. He tells us what is right and wrong, to put it most simply. But when a marriage is healthy in Christ, that marriage becomes a witness for Christ. And that's what we want to see in the marriages at Ridgecrest. But we also want to see that in all the relationships where people can see the love of Christ, the beauty of Christ in our relationships. Back in the early 20th century, a man by the name of Sigmund Freud had theories about how the human heart operates. His theories are godless, they intend to be so. He was trying to come up with a way of helping people uh, and, and kind of removing God from the equation altogether. Those of you who have studied, been in Psych 101 or ever, ever studied anything in psychology or Freudian psychology in particular, you know that, that he decided to really uh, beat on the drum or, or go in the, in, in, into the uh, category there of sexuality. And really our culture has like, swallowed that idea hook line and sinker like like a fish uh just kind of like a dumb fish grabbing that hook and we've ran with it and here's my point the culture today is trying to tell us that the only thing that matters in terms of identity is sexuality but I have a different message for you yes sexuality is part of the equation The two shall become one flesh is a clear sexual metaphor. But I want you to realize it's more than that. It's about relational intimacy. It's about two hearts becoming one. Church, we have to reclaim the high ground here when we talk about human sexuality and realize it is a beautiful gift from God and it's a way that our hearts can join together. But it's not just for selfish pleasure. We join our hearts together as husbands and wives so that we can be a picture of Christ and his church so that we can live out Ephesians 5 and the world can see even in our marriage the love of Jesus. We want to be that kind of church that celebrates the good gifts of God, 
the beauty of marriage, of togetherness, that we can have intimacy with our, our spouse. And, and let, I don't want to use that word intimacy with the Christian relationships because, again, there's lines that God has drawn. Sexuality is within marriage, but there is a way for us when we think about our relationships in the church. It is so important that we have uh, that, that willingness to open our hearts to a handful of people who become our accountability partners. Marriage is an ultimate, uh, for me it is, the uh, ultimate accountability partner is my wife. But I also in the church have many of you who, the elders and other brothers in this, in this church, and even some, some super wise, wonderful sisters too, that when, when they speak truth to me, I, I know they're speaking it in love, in, in Christian love. And, and I need that and you need that. We are in big trouble when we think we don't need that kind of accountability. Oh, friends, we've, we've been put together. The garden was not to be a lonely place for Adam. It was a place of fellowship. And I want you to think of the church in that way. It can be something like a Garden of Eden where the fellowship we have with one another as we walk together, as we walk together and try to seek God together. That is the kind of intimacy we're talking about. Listen, the devil loves to wreck marriages because when he can wreck a marriage, he can certainly put a mar on our gospel witness. So where do we land? Well, there are three clear ways here. Work, the word, and wedded bliss. Three ways that we can bring beauty into the world. And I want to just ask you, just, just to be honest and open and frank with you, where, where do you stand? What, what kind of difference are you making? I mean, in your workplace, you don't have to bring the big Bible to work every day and slam it down on the desk so that everybody knows, you know, the Christian is here and let's uh, commence arguing or whatever. I am talking about being that person whose smile and sweet presence, people want to have a conversation with you because you're nice. A dear friend of mine once told me that one of the biggest advantages or one of, the, one of the, uh, the most important things anybody ever taught him was as a Christian, just be nice. Shocking. You know? There's a, there's a meme that's out there, cracks me up, and it's, a, it's an elderly lady, and she's smiling real big, and she says, uh, church is over, I'm going to go ruin some waiter's life, you know, it's just kind of, you know, we don't want to be that person, all right? And I, I saw that, and I kind of had to laugh, because I'm like, gosh, I've pastored those folks, but anyway, um, not now, not now, because you guys are awesome, but, uh, but, but the truth is, is that we need to be gracious and nice and work needs to be viewed as an opportunity but it's not going to be an opportunity if the word of God isn't firmly placed in your heart if if you are not obedient all beautiful things begin with obedience to God your marriage has to be given over to God that's what will make it beautiful we have these invitations. What are they for? Well, today it's pretty simple. It's just a surrender. It's a choice you're going to make to walk away from any ugliness in your life and to embrace the beautiful vision that God has for you. I know, I know, we cannot exactly get back to the Garden of Eden, but I think we can start recapturing some of its beauty. And it all begins with you being humble enough this morning me being humble enough to submit our hearts to Christ 
in this altar, in your seat, submitting to Christ and saying, Lord, I know there's some messed up things in my life. I know there's some sharp edges to my personality. Take them away. Take them away so that I can be like you, that I can have fellowship with you. Will you surrender to that vision? Thanks for listening. For additional resources, to learn more about us or get connected, visit RidgecrestBaptist.org.